This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Wes Off. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. We're back for another week of podcast. I'm glad you're listening with us, listeners. And uh, it's me and Andy today, and we have somebody else. I'm here. Wesley Huff. <laughs> yes. Good to be in your presence. <laughs> From a distance. <laughs> good, good to be in the presence of your voice. The presence <laughs> of your voice. Basking in the presence of your audio. Uh, how are things out there in Toronto? Uh, they're not too bad. The weather in particular has calmed down a little bit. It was... A little bit toasty over here for a couple weeks there. Yeah, you're getting, you're stealing all of our heat, P.S. Yeah, well, <laughs> if I could um, send some your way, I think I'd be fine with that. We have had a very mild summer. Yeah, today hasn't been too bad. It's been sitting around 25, which feels like a bit of a reprieve. But two weeks back, it was, with the Humidex, it was up in the 40s, and that's just nonsense. Nobody <laughs> should ever have to deal with that kind of heat. So for listeners that don't know Wesley's name, he is our newest associate with Apologetics Canada. I think, it, you know, he came on in, oh boy, May? August? Some, uh, August. <laughs> June? Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> so if uh, you're tuning in for the first time, yes, this is Wesley and he's the newest associate. So, uh, before, you know, I feel like before we get too deep into things, we need to take a moment to reflect on the NBA. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, you know, Wes, you being out there in Toronto, man, did you, I hear there were a million people celebrating the win. Toronto, oh, Toronto yes. Raptors Yeah, win. it's kind of weird. Things have calmed down a little bit. It was like Raptors fever. Everything was Raptors for a while there. And then we won and it was a little bit nuts. Uh, yeah, down at like um, down at City Hall, I think they said they had close to two million people. Two Two million yeah, who showed up. And I mean, I can't even, that's like the population of the greater Toronto area. So obviously people drove in because I wasn't there and I'm part of that population. So um, obviously, obviously someone replaced me. Yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. I'm not the biggest basketball fan. Like I like basketball, but I'm definitely not. I wouldn't describe myself as a Raptors fan other than, you know, the bandwagoning when they're doing well. That was a pretty good uh, series, though. It was pretty yeah, good Yeah, it was. Series. It was. And it was fun to watch. It's fun to get into that sort of mindset. Yeah. Uh, everybody, it's like a community feel yeah. um, for a little while there. Now everyone on public transit is back to um, ignoring each other and giving each other scowls. <laughs> <laughs> but for, the high no, fives are over. No yeah. yeah, back to the phones. And, <laughs> and since that time, they've lost their star player. Yeah. yeah. Uh, He's been traded. Yeah, a moment traded. of silence for Kawhi Leonard. But um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was actually oh, really good. fun. Uh, you could go into restaurants and locations uh, around the city for a while there when uh, Kawhi was trying to figure out his free agency and whether he'd stay or not. And there were signs on a lot of the restaurants that would say Kawhi eats free or like Kawhi gets a free haircut or That's it hilarious. was like every second, trying to every second. Him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty fun. But um, things have calmed down a little bit with the heat. Maybe that's what happened. It was the, the heat. The heat came with the NBA buzz and now it's calmed down and everybody's back to being regular. I mean, that is fun with so many people because when we had the Olympics here. 
you could go downtown Vancouver and there's so many people, there's jumbotron screens everywhere. You could be standing and mm-hmm. watching and it was just a good, you know, community thing, which was amazing, amazing that way. Well, we're going to jump into things. I think a lot of listeners have probably seen a lot of headlines lately, and we're going to address an issue today that's uh, been in the headlines. Uh, MSN headlines read, Joshua Harris, well-known Christian author, purity advocate, renounces faith. So uh, starting, uh, I don't know. Well, Well, we should should back up because that one caught me by surprise. I was following the news and saw... Yeah, that is more recent, yeah. Yeah, I saw where he kissed his book, Dating Goodbye. Yeah. Uh, And so I thought, you know, by the way, I thought that was a clever pun, but that's fine. That's fine. No laughs. I'm fine. I'll move on. Then it's kissing his faith goodbye. Right. Do you see what I did there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But back in November of 2018, he did an op-ed in US Today. That's kind of where it all started. How and why I rethought dating and purity culture. Well, he did a documentary as well. And he did the documentary as well Mm. in the same year. I survived. I kissed uh, dating goodbye. So, yeah, now he's just pretty much believing that a lot of the stuff within his book was harmful and it's hurt a lot of people over the years. And that documentary really jumps into him talking with people about the book. Can I just jump in here real quick? Listen, in 1997, when this book came out, I disagreed with it all the way back then. I remember when that book came out. I thought it was nonsense. I still think it's nonsense. But there's no big deal with him coming to the conclusion, finally, that his book was nonsense. This whole you know, I kiss dating goodbye thing. And if you're unfamiliar with it, he just advocated for people to stop dating, to court and uh, other things such as not kissing and those sorts of things. The not not kissing part and the not dating part, I thought would just utter nonsense. Yeah. I didn't read the book because I was already married. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you were. Back back then. You were married in 1997? I was married way before that, dude. What? <laughs> Just when I think you're old. I won't mention how old I, I was in 1997. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I got married in 91. We're coming up on 28 years. What? Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. But even back in the 80s, when I was growing up, a lot of this stuff was bubbling at that time. Yeah. Right? There was a lot of talk about this purity and keeping yourself, you know. No, I don't have no problem with the purity part. Yeah. Of course. Well, (laughs) that should be a big part of every person, every Christian's life. I think it was taken to an extreme with that. Well, yeah, the no kissing. No kissing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have boyfriends. And and I had friends who followed that who didn't kiss. Now, it was interesting in my dating relationship, I chose not to say, Nancy and I chose not to say, I love you. Uh, in that relationship. But again, none of that was Harris-driven. What about you, Wesley? What's been your experience? Yeah, well, just to jump in and give some context, Terry, I was born in 1991. So... All right. I was not sure if that was a slam or a... (laughs) I don't know if that gives me more credibility or less credibility. I'm not even sure what that that tidbit adds to this conversation. But yeah, I mean, being the uh, young millennial in the group, I think I was part of that whole culture. I mean, my family came back from overseas when I was relatively young and the whole purity culture era was sort of something that my parents jumped into in regards to my upbringing. And I don't know what age I was when I I read uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I wasn't totally interested to be honest, I didn't really take note of it. Although I do remember reading it. I was probably just young and naive and, and uh, foolish. 
But the whole purity culture, I remember, uh, was was a, a pretty big thing. It was almost popular, along with you know you had Josh Harris writing uh, "I Kiss Dating Goodbye" and, and the purity um, rings and stuff like that. Is that what you're getting? Oh at? yeah, totally. And yeah. there were some pretty influential individuals who actually we would recognize their names today. The Jonas who Brothers would walk around. Yeah, the Jonas Brothers, Miley Cyrus, Demi yep. Lovato, Selena Gomez, like names that are still within the pop culture ether today we're walking around with purity rings and there were purity balls where fathers would take their daughters out if i could just take a moment to say that there's a great band out there called purity ring it's, a, it's an unfortunate <laughs> name <laughs> it has nothing to do with the uh, purity culture but just just throwing it out there okay thanks. yeah and i think i think <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to do with that, Andy. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> um, just keep talking. Just keep moving on. <laughs> um, there's a, yeah, I mean, there was also like all the true love weights literature. I don't know if you remember that. That sort of popped up in 1993 and was, uh, I think it was a uh, focus on the family thing. I, I might be wrong about that, but there were like conferences and, Books you could read on the whole true love waits moment. And I think actually the intention of a lot of the stuff, like you said, Andy, is is good. The idea of biblical purity, but I think where they were right in motivation, they may have gone a little awry in method in terms of the whole idea of, you know, pushing this to a level. And I think even even Josh Harris in the, the documentary that you mentioned that he made, I Survived Kiss Dating Goodbye, he mentions that he thinks that it was still a preoccupation with sex. It was just a preoccupation with sex within marriage. So it sort of moved the goalpost. And instead of talking about like holistic purity, it just told young people that if they followed these steps, they'd have a, a great sex life in marriage. I think that's a great point to highlight because it wasn't just a great sex life in marriage. It was you would have a successful marriage. Mm-hmm. You just needed to follow his formula. And because ultimately he argued that dating was just practicing for mm-hmm. divorce. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's why the truth bomb of the Instagram post on July 17th, where he, him and his wife did this joint post on both their Instagram pages where they announced that they were separating. I think that's why it landed and made such a significant impact because his mentality and what he'd been promoting um, through a few of his books was that like this was how you avoided the whole devastation of separation and divorce in our culture. Um, and it's something that I, I've seen in the secular media, you know, them jumping on that and saying like, well, clearly this didn't work. And Bro, I know, I think that's why the media right now is just eating this story up. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know what? I think looking back, I think there was a little bit, I remember watching uh, the documentary that came out a couple of years ago with my wife and wondering if Harris might've been throwing out some of the, throwing out the baby with the bathwater a little bit in terms of what he'd been advocating for. Cause there was a lot, if I think back in some of that whole purity culture, I kiss dating goodbye stuff that was useful, that was practical. But I think if we make anything a means to itself, it's always going to get skewed. And if I could jump in here, I remember back in 1997, that's right. 
back when I graduated and this book came out and uh, Terry was fathering his <laughs> children and he was deep into marriage at that point. Uh, but I remember that dating was, was pretty silly back then. I mean, people were dating in junior high and is quite young, you know, it wasn't, wasn't unusual to be in middle, in grade like four or three, you know, and people got their boyfriends and girlfriends. And that was very common back then. And dating really was back then this, this idea that it was this exclusive relationship that you could push this relationship as far as you possibly could. So I, I thought that there was helpful ideas in the sense of pushing back in this culture that was, you know, really, which, which had these, these uh, kids that were taking these relationships too far, too early, that, that sort of thing. And one of the things that I talked about early on as a youth pastor and as a young adult pastor, and I still talk about to this day, is talking about the purpose of dating. Because I, I really felt like that had been completely lost, especially if, you know, then dating just becomes, you know, what can I get out of this relationship and how far can I push this relationship physically? Ultimately, I, I began to argue, well, listen, dating is for the purpose of marriage. And so if, you know, because people are asked, well, how old do you think, Andy, you should be before you start dating? And my, and my advice would be, well, you should start dating when you're ready to get married. If you're seriously um, looking at getting married, I mean, you should be dating. And if you're dating and you come to the conclusion that you wouldn't marry this person, you should break up with them, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the purpose of all this is to get married. One thing I found interesting about the book, and in some of his comments that came out in his documentary and stuff, I mean, this was such a well-read book. Like, over a, one million copies were I'm sold I'm happy to this. say I, I did not read You that. did not read it. No, but... I did not read it either. I remember but, when it came out, though, because I just yeah. disagreed with it. I'm like, I'm not going to read that book. Yeah. It's silly. But he says a lot of the things that he emphasized in there, the practices or the concepts, the practice of no dating or no kissing, the concepts of giving your heart away or not giving your heart away kind of thing. I would disagree that, with, by the way, he said that that wasn't biblical in his post. Yeah. And well, that, I, I think that's nonsense. I think that that is biblical. That was going to be my point. He was basically saying that it, a lot of these things that he was emphasizing were, was not biblical at all. I just think that's ridiculous. Even the courting is biblical. It's cultural. Uh, the, that's one of the reasons why I thought his idea was, was so silly. But this idea that it's not biblical and this idea of, you know, giving your heart away isn't biblical. I mean, it is biblical. You go all the way back to Genesis that the two become one flesh is biblical that when you get into a sexual relationship with somebody, yeah, there are things taking place there that is designed and should be for marriage and will harm you if you're taking a dating relationship in those physical dimensions that were meant for marriage and thinking that that's not going to create baggage for you later or challenges uh, is nonsense. So, so I thought, no, I think that there is a lot of biblical aspects to what he's saying. Well, and I think a lot of, I mean, you see these big movements that happen, whether that's in society or within the North American evangelical circles. But I was even wondering when I was reading up on some of this, uh, some of the background to this stuff, how much of this is a reaction against the over-sexual revolution that began in the 60s and 70s. And all of a sudden, you know, you have individuals who grew up in those eras and there's a proliferation of sex and there may have been some damage spiritually, mentally, physically, and wanting to guard their kids against that flood of the culture. Well, even I just looked up some, some statistics uh, before then because um, 
I wondered, you know, had any of this actually made a difference? And uh, I did find that there was a significant decline between 1995 and 2002 in the sexual activity of girls aged 15 to 17 and boys aged 15 to 18. And the study showed that the proportion of never married females of 15 to 17 years of age who had had sexual intercourse dropped from 38% in 1995 to 30% in 2002. But there was a study that was done in 2009 that showed that um, with a lot of these people who had signed these true love weight pledges or um, chastity pledges, that kind of thing, there was really no difference in those who had signed them and those who didn't sign them between um, the levels of premarital sex and, and even STD infection rates. So it's tough to quantify whether there was actually a difference made. Uh, some some of the, the numbers seem to indicate that there was and others seem to indicate that life just went on as usual. If I could throw one other thing in there I think we haven't talked about yet because I remember in 1997 when all this was playing out, AIDS was a huge topic at that time. Yeah, definitely. And I remember mm-hmm. the school systems, you know, one of the one of the methods to try to deal with this, because listen, uh, there was a girl in my school that got AIDS. She was very promiscuous. And that had a huge impact mm-hmm. on our school going, wow, there's somebody in our school that got AIDS from being sexually promiscuous. And so there was more of an impetus towards abstinence than just religious. Uh, there was the STD epidemic that was taking place and people reeling from that. And so in some ways you got the, you know, Christianity is responding to it in that way. Now, one thing though, that I saw anecdotally over the years that I found fascinating is in the church at that time, there was a lot of sexual misconduct taking place at high levels and low levels from famous mega church pastors with these affairs that were taking place to in the local church, even the church I was in, these these different affairs that were happening that were really unbelievable. But yet in the church for a time there, it was quite common. Even the first two pastors I worked with disqualified themselves from ministry for that reason. And so it's been interesting to me over the years doing ministry that as of the last like 10 years or so, even more, the amount of instances have dropped dramatically from what I've seen. However, also dating cultures change drastically as well. At the same time, you have things like internet pornography that has taken off. And so it's kind of interesting in some ways because where you have perhaps less promiscuous stuff happening in dating because young people tend not to date as much now. And now what you get more is like the hookup culture and on top of that, we have more of a porn culture than that's going on. Mm. And so it's interesting that what used to be out in the light and people would see in these, these scandals kind of taking place now is much more behind the scenes, behind closed doors. Mm. And I would argue is probably taking place more virtually in these other, these other methods, even like in the hookup culture and whatnot. One thing I resonated with when I came across this one author, her name is Caitlin Beatty, and she actually called it a sexual prosperity gospel where you give to God and he's going to give to you kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. I remember seeing that, hearing that, thinking that, that that was a way that you were just going to have the best marriage, the best sex of your life is if you wait and God will give you that in the end. Yeah. It was a little messed up. Oh, a lot messed up. We made marriage all about sex. 
Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get married and you start to realize that sex isn't everything that you had hoped and dreamed it would be. I mean, there are a lot of guys, myself included, that had waited till they got married to have sex. And then you begin to realize sex can be difficult, challenging, awkward, and all the above. Uh, which, by the way, the older you get, it's something that you get better at. I won't go into any more detail as this conversation will be awkward for some of you. Terry's already squirming. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you, you can't see it, but I'm I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, we've made it all about sex. I even have a friend who got married and for medical reasons, him and his wife cannot have sex. He and I have had some very interesting conversations over this. And it's been an, an incredible journey for him going through, you know, what is marriage and what happens when sex isn't everything that you thought it would be? Because I think you're right, Terry. I think in many ways we sexualized marriage. But mm-hmm. I, and I think we've done other things with it. I think there's many people who've made marriage all about having children too. And right. then they get married and realize you might not be able to have children. Like for Terry, you, you and your wife, you ended up uh, adopting. You weren't able to have children. Right. Yeah. That was part of our story as well. But yet yep. you did everything right. You know, yep. went to church, you know, you, you did all those things, you know, wait, wait until you get married and, and all the above. And yet there were challenges. Yeah. I mean, we came on the out other side, even now with no kids and we still, it is a pain still in my soul at times, you know, when certain people have kids, other people get married, those kind of things, you kind of go, yeah, this is not how it was supposed to happen. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I think what, what a big thing for me in my marriage journey was that, I mean, marriage is no less than sex, but it's so much more than sex. And when we sort of create an emphasis on this one thing, especially within our hyper-sexualized culture. Um, and as you mentioned, Andy, a pornified culture. Mm-hmm. I once heard a description of the effect that pornography has created on a lot of uh, a lot of relationships as uh, just watching the highlight reel on ESPN. When you watch the highlight reel, all you see are like the dunks and, you know, the deeks and the amazing goals. And you can think, wow, man, sport is really exciting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you watch a professional soccer game or a professional hockey game, especially a Leafs game, then you'll really be disappointed. (laughs) You watch those games and you realize, no, there are ebbs and flows and there are times of excitement and not. And awkward moments. Oh, totally. You even get this in movies where it's just very romanticized, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the proliferation of porn and sex portrayed in the media has skewed the fact that it's more complex than just watching the highlight reel. Actually, I'm reminded there's a book called Real Sex, and the author is uh, Lauren Winner. And she talks about the fact that chastity, particularly chastity and abstinence before marriage, it's not the mere absence of sex, but an active conforming of one's body to, and I think that phrase she uses is arc of the gospel. I mean, we can so easily make, whether it's purity or all sorts of other things in our Christian walks into a legalistic issue Mm -hmm. into, you know, do this or don't do this. And I think we forget the conversation of holiness sometimes that what we're really doing is through the process of sanctification, we're conforming ourselves to the holiness of God. It's not merely, you know, stop doing these things because God doesn't want you to. And I think that 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 sort of 
centering of, you know, why are we not doing things or doing things um, kind of gets lost sometimes. Oh, yeah. And that, even just the brokenness of situations, relationships and the need for forgiveness, the need for grace, the need for hope, you know, because I, I think about uh, parenting, for example, I once heard uh, a speaker actually recently said, you know, listen, you follow these five, you know, rules of parenting and your kids, you know, will love Jesus and, and be successful in life and, and whatnot. <laughs> and I, and I look at that and I'm just like, that's absolute nonsense. The world uh, doesn't work like that. People are broken. Situations are broken. Broken things will happen. There is need for forgiveness, grace, and again, hope. We live in a broken world, and and there's there's need for uh, you know hope of restoration. The thing with regards to the Joshua Harris story that really took me by surprise is, first of all, uh, I saw Josh just the other day at Regent. Uh, he lives here in in Vancouver. And uh, I was out there for something. I can't remember why, but he was there and he and I talked and it seemed like he was doing fine. You know, he, he had pastored for a while there and now he was going to seminary to complete his education. And from our conversation for, with every desire to go and continue in ministry. And in fact, we had him out here at our church speaking on marriage just a couple of years ago. I mean, I think it was two, two years ago, maybe or so. So again, that really came as a shock. I mean, it seemed like the guy was doing fine. And so my heart really breaks for this situation for, mm. for Josh and particularly, you know, you know for his wife and family and, and his kids. But I, I want to throw this in there because I, I think that this is key to his story. And it's something that we see on repeat over and over again. I wasn't surprised, though, when I saw, you know, first it was they were going to divorce, and now it's that he's divorced himself from Christianity as well. Uh, I wasn't surprised to see that because this is so, so common. I won't be surprised if there's some other lady or some other relationship that ends up coming together there uh, with him. Wouldn't surprise me at all. I, I had this moment take place in my PhD work that... Uh, was really, I thought was, was interesting. I've been studying this guy, uh, Polanyi, for many, many years now. And one of the big controversies in his life is, was this guy a Christian or not? Because there's at times where he seems to be Christian, and there's times that he seems not to be Christian. There's times that his writing is quite Christian. There's other times where he seems to distance himself from Christianity. And one of the things that's recently come out in scholarship is infidelity in his life and how that infidelity seems to line up with, you know, where he's at in his Christianity at any given time. And so that's one of the aspects of sin that's so deceptive, right? Is that if I want to say, pursue some other relationship, you know, if you want to leave your wife, it's much easier to do so if you leave your faith, if you leave your moral foundation and structuring, that has to break down in order for you to go against uh, what you believe to be true. I mean, this is why I think Adam and Eve is so uh, instructive when you look at how Adam and Eve ultimately break relationship with God, you know, through this conversation that takes place through the serpent, you know, Adam and Eve begin to question the character of God. 
And when you question the character of God, particularly when you question God's wisdom, when you question God's love, when you question God's goodness, if you come to the conclusion that God's not loving, wise, or good, I mean, then you would be a fool to follow his law. The flip's also true. If you come to believe that God is loving, that God is wise, and he is good, well, you would be a fool not to follow his law, because obviously it would be for your good and flourishing. And so I see these things as intimately connected. Wasn't surprised to see that, but I break for him because he's just given up on everything so that ultimately he can follow whatever it is that's enticing him. One word that really comes up lately, uh, you know, with people within the Christian faith is this whole word of deconstructing your faith. And I think that's what has happened here in a sense. Uh, There's been a major faith kind of transition for him. And it seems like it has happened quite quickly. I mean, the book is 20 years old, but we've been hearing little rumblings within the last year. And then within this, you know, number of months here, he's gone from addressing his book to divorcing his wife and then saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. But one of the other things that I read as well is that for those that were in the conservative, very conservative religious groupings within our culture, that transition is a major transition in the sense that, you know, you have these very conservative beliefs, but then you flip to this other side, which he has. Yeah. Uh, he's really gone the other extreme, mm-hmm. but for those that have had moderate uh, belief, religious beliefs in their lives, it's a different transition. It's not such a major transition. Yeah, I think one of the worries I see is, um, especially within um, the world of academia, and maybe Andy, you've seen this too, is that I see a lot of people go into, um, whether it's a seminary context or other academic institution context, to with, with the honest intention of learning more about their faith. And yet there wasn't a good grounding going into that. And so they encounter a lot of different perspectives and there's sort of this, I, I hesitate to say false humility, but that's almost how it appears to me sometimes is this false humility about questions and doubts. And it's seen as, I hate to use the word progressive in this context, but progressive and forward thinking to, you know, question your beliefs. And uh, I think that's, there's a good side of that within critical thinking, but I think within Christianity, it's not wrong to question. It's not wrong to jump into those big ultimate questions that we have and those doubts that we have. But G.K. Chesterton uh, said that having an open mind is like having an open mouth. The point is to close it on something solid. And I think sometimes I see individuals who have an earnest intention to study and to learn, uh, but they have a shaky foundation as to where they stand to begin with. And they go into context and they see different perspectives fighting uh, with each other. And um, I've heard the phrase uh, graduating with a master's degree in confusion come from (laughs) a number of people uh, in regards to seminary graduates, because they thought that, you know, they had these ideas of biblical sufficiency and inerrancy and inspiration and, you know, the supremacy of Christ. And then they encounter a potential uh, liberal ideas and some of the ideologies of the world that have crept into these institutions. And because there isn't a, a whole lot of maturity and grounding there, it really causes them to 
to suffer spiritually and intellectually. And I worry about that um, mm-hmm. as someone who is uh, active within um, academia, seeing some of my friends wrestle with these ideas and think, you know, well, if, you know, so-and-so is really smart and he doesn't believe in this, then who am I to say that, you know, I do believe in it. And I think it's a good reminder to stay gospel-centered and to understand that, yes, we're broken. Um, yes, we won't know all the answers, but that we can plant our feet firmly in the rock that is Christ, despite, you know, the winds and the waves of, of the culture and skepticism and all, all sorts of those things. And I, I hope that uh, this situation with Harris is a good reminder to not put our trust and our foundations in people or in churches or in movements, uh, but to firmly plant them in Christ. Uh, I'm absolutely uh, with you there. It's interesting to me, and you know, there's some people that have I, as I went into my master's degree or I went into my PhD, you know, they'll, they'll worry for you and they'll be like, I wonder, is your faith going to survive, you know, this education? It's interesting because, I mean, you could point to somebody and say, oh, look, he's, he or she's really smart and, and they don't believe but yet you can also point to just as many people that are equally as smart or or more, and they do believe. So when you get into academia, there is this tension that's taking place where there's lots of smart people that believe, lots of smart people that don't believe, and, and you're you know navigating this. But I mean, this also takes place in life in general. I mean, I was out for dinner with a well-known atheist recently. And his wife was there. I won't mention who it is because more of a private conversation, but it was interesting to me. You know, my wife was there too. And and his wife is a Christian and not just a Christian, but like a committed Christian. And I just thought about the tension in their relationship, you know, that's taking place. You know, you see that taking place. So you got that in your personal life and you got that in academic life and, and you've got to wrestle through that. The challenge though, that I guess I'm really pointing at is, the greater dilemma that takes place is what's happening in your heart because, you know, your mind can direct your heart, but your heart can direct your mind. Mm-hmm. And, and this becomes, a, you know, the classic battle of sin and, and evil and how it, it can be so easy to be enticed. I think it's true that every one of us goes through some transitions and some thoughts, you know, is this true or not kind of thing, right? You guys have been studying for a long time. You're doing both doing your doctorates right now. Is there some issues that still pop up that give you question? And if there is, what is your first step in addressing a doubt, a question that is coming through in what you've read, uh, what you've heard, that kind of thing? If I were to say if there's anything that in my life has caused doubt or angst or frustration, you know, if I were just to be 100% honest on that, I would say marriage would be at the top of that list. The reason is, is because I guess when I got married, I expected that it was going to be paradise. You know, I figured I had really bought into this idea that all of my sexual angst would be answered. Are you sure you didn't read the book? I <laughs> know. <laughs> Well, it's funny. I, had, I do have his other his second book. I don't know that I've read it, but it's in my shelf. At any rate, I, I, I really did. I, I thought that it was going to solve all of my problems or challenges you know, as a young man. And then you get married and you realize this whole marriage thing is a lot harder than you thought it was. Sex isn't as great as you thought it would be. And, it's, you know, and there's these, these challenging moments. 
a lot of the challenges that I went through in marriage were my first two years of marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, those were um, difficult years uh, for me. And those would have been where a lot of my challenges and angst and frustration uh, and really crying out to the Lord, uh, you know, working through those issues uh, developed. And thankfully, Nancy and I are celebrating, you know, 18 years of marriage and whoop, whoop. Yeah. And our, our faith is strong and our marriage is strong, nice. but it's not like it hasn't been a challenge. Yeah. And I remember I had plenty of prayer times with the Lord going, Lord, why did you make marriage so difficult? <laughs> this is frustrating, you know, and then you have difficulty having children and all those other issues. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of soul searching that happens in all those moments. Uh, and I would say that those have been my most challenging moments where I've had to wrestle through my faith and wrestle through where my hope is. And uh, is, you know, is this broken world what God's intention is for us? And this really gets, I guess, to your question, Terry, is what do I do? In my moments of doubt or frustration uh, with circum- life circumstances, uh, I always go back to just what the foundation of my beliefs is built upon. Do I believe that God exists? Why do I believe that God exists? Do I believe who, that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Why do I believe that? And really, I guess there's these moments when you're experiencing a storm and you're wondering if the house is going to withstand it and you look at the foundation you built that house on, you look at the structure of that house and it's one of those times that you need to be reminded, oh yeah, this is a solid house. I couldn't have built a stronger house and this can weather this storm of life. I think it's a good question, Terry, because there are, I mean, you're, you're never going to have a hundred percent confidence all the time in everything. And there are definitely times, um, whether that's intellectual issues or, uh, you know, emotional things that come up where you sort of get knocked off of your stabilization in regards to your faith. And I get asked a lot in terms of the the public forum stuff that I do, you know, if if Christianity weren't true, you know, would you still believe it? And and a lot of the time, I think they expect me to say, well, yes, of course, you know, I believe it because, you know, I'm a Christian. And I used to say, well, no, obviously I wouldn't believe it. Uh, But then rephrasing that question, the more that I thought about it over time, it's somewhat of a a disingenuous question because it's really saying, you know, if all of the evidence for what you believed all of a sudden did not become the evidence, well, would you still believe it? And I think, well, well, no, but the evidence is there. So what kind of silly question is that? If all the evidence that I was sitting in my office and talking to Terry and and Andy right now, if all of a sudden that none of that was true, well, would I still be sitting in my office talking to Terry and Andy? Well, no, but I am sitting in my office talking to Terry and Andy. So the question is kind of irrelevant. And that's not to say that there aren't, you know, issues that arise, but I think because of the fact that I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that Christianity is true because of the evidence and because of what I've experienced and because I have experienced things in my life that I just cannot explain. It would take, ironically, a miracle to convince me otherwise. But in terms of what your question is asking specifically, Terry, I think there are things that come up, especially because a lot of my academic supervisors and professors are not Christians. They do raise 
questions that I do have to take serious and look into. Uh, but I think digging into those questions has has not dismantled my face, my, my face. I hope it doesn't dismantle my face, (laughs) my faith. Um, my face is doing fine, but, um, they've actually worked to strengthen my faith because they forced me to look into a little bit of the other side. And, uh, I've probably been talking for too long at this point, but just, just to wrap up an over convoluted answer, I think I've always been very encouraged by the fact that, when you open to the book of Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible, um, that well-known Psalm that a lot of people know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You know, a very comforting passage. It immediately precedes Psalm 22, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer me by night, but I find no rest. And I think one of the comforts to me is that the same God who looks at Psalm 22, the person who says, God, why? I don't understand. Why does it feel like you've forsaken me? And the God who looks at the person who says, the Lord is my shepherd, sees those two things as equally valid forms of worship. That's always been comforting to me when I do encounter things that maybe make me question, that make me struggle, is that God is okay with that. He's big enough to handle those things. And he doesn't get angry at us for for questioning him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that if, if we keep things in context, particularly within what we've been talking about in terms of the whole purity thing, the purity culture, uh, if we have our, our focus on Christ and um, not on, you know, some fear of premarital pregnancy or STDs or, you know, the shame of our family of, and that sort of thing, but but focus on Christ and be doing it for Him. I think that completely changes uh, the ball game. Uh, last night I was at a a Bible study that we do on on Wednesday evenings, and we've been going through Jonah. And one of the things that was in the the study notes that were printed out in talking about Jonah, it just simply said that the, one of the biggest reminders of the story of Jonah is uh, not what we are doing for God, but what God is doing for us. Often we can see our faith as what we're doing for God, whether that's in, in our marriage or uh, in, in our ministry or in our daily lives. And I think it's just a good reminder that, that it's, it's what God is doing in our lives rather than what we're doing for God uh, that, that changes the perspective of keeping it God-centered and not us-centered. And, and sometimes I wonder... Uh, whether the one of the big faults of of either um, some of the purity stuff that we've been talking about, or this fixation on the fact that a marriage, you know, will solve all of our issues, and then we get there and realize that you know marriage is hard. It's 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 a work uh, for both individuals. Is that if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, then we'll we'll have a right perspective to be able to work through these things as people on the same journey. Well, we're going to have to wrap this podcast up right now. We are uh, so thankful, uh, Wesley, that you've joined us today. It was great to have your voice on. 
Um, I just want to end here with one thing that Joshua Harris said just recently. He says, by all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to to this, but I am not there now. Uh, There was another writer that I came across, and he said he was a Christian that turned atheist that turned follower of Jesus. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about, Wesley, about being firm in your in your belief in Christ as well. But I think, we, you know, as we, as we talk about this issue, uh, there's been so much judgments towards him and what he's doing and his thoughts and, his, and what he's written about and his documentary. But we continue to keep him in our prayers and we will uh, continue to do that as we move forward. Thanks for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about.